169 prisoners are being brought for trial to this court in the city of London, the Old Bailey. Their finding of the Old Bailey car bomb that killed one man and caused 178 casualties. But I'm enormously grateful to the jury. Sensational developments from the phone hacking trial. The judge here. made his ruling today. Huntley shook and turned pale. The third IRA suspect to be acquitted of terrorist charges here in a year. The sentence of the court is one of life imprisonment. Would you please take the defendant downstairs? The Old Bailey is the home of British justice. Its walls have formed the theatre to our greatest national dramas. To Oscar Wilde, George Blake and Christine Keeler. To Sutcliffe, Huntley and Warboys. The IRA and Al-Qaeda. Through the rows of metal detectors, up a marble staircase, past statues of long forgotten judges, in a crowded wood panelled back room, all day long, a team of court reporters dart between hearings. They work to file the reports that go out to newspaper offices across the country. No transcripts exist in British courts. They are not televised. Without court reporters, justice is not only blind, it is mute. And there are vanishingly few court reporters left. Court News is the last specialist agency to operate from the Old Bailey. They've been here since 1985. In their vaults lie first-hand accounts of every major case of the age. I'm Gavin Haynes. In this series, we're going to be going inside British trials, through the eyes of those who see justice being done every single day. The court news team. And he basically did, he was doing this at like 10 o'clock in the morning, and this barrister goes, you were, <laughs> he's like, she was outraged. She goes, you were smoking cannabis at 10 o'clock in the morning. It's a bit early, isn't it? <laughs> no, but I don't think you know how, how drug addiction works, you see. It doesn't... You know, it's not like you do, go over and sort of, you know, our gin and tonic at half past seven, me lad. Uh, I'm Jack Hudson, I'm a court reporter at Central News. And how long have you been working for Central News? Uh, since yesterday, one year. Uh, Feliz Navidad. Thank <laughs> you. And how have you found it so far? Yeah, it's an excellent job. It's very interesting every day. You do very different stories. Jack Hudson is very tall and very willowy, with a sharp streak of blonde in his dark hair. Or maybe it's a streak of dark in his blonde hair. He's climbed the ladder in short order, covering some of the biggest cases for the Court News UK team, also known as the Central News Agency. Right now, he's working on something codenamed the Ketchup Murders, and also on the murder of a 71-year-old hoarder, the murder of a father by his stepdaughter, and the alleged murder of a Turkish DJ by his creditors. It's a mixed diet. What's the vibe overall at Court News? What, what kind of a place is it? Very relaxed place. I think people would be quite surprised with how relaxed and fun it can be. You know, we get the job done. We have people at the Bailey and people covering different courts across London. Yeah, it's a very fun place to work. I think you have to keep it fun when the content of what you're covering is quite dark. There's a kind of gallows humour. Yes, indeed. Court reporters spend a lot of time reliving the worst days of other people's lives. And the last days. It takes a toll. In a modern company, one way to offset that toll is through regular counselling. But at Court News, where budgets are tighter, the medical aid plan is all gallows humour. And the biggest dose comes straight from the top. The company's co-owners, Scott Wilford and Guy Toyne. 
The other thing about Scott and I is we share a sense of humour where we think that topping yourself is uh, not a bad thing to say. And we share a sense of humour where sometimes we think that people who do top themselves in strange ways uh, can be a subject of mirth. And sometimes we do find some of the cases amusing. Um, I've been, you know, sitting in the back of the court having a right old laugh. And uh, in fact, one time I was having a, a laugh and uh, the judge basically, you know, staring at me. I think it was Nicholas Van Hoogstraten who was talking about some nonsense that he was up to. And it was particularly funny. He had a very deadpan sort of cockney way of talking about it, a bit like this. It was very, very amusing. And uh, the judge gave me a hard stare across the court, as it were, which obviously I completely ignored. Oh, I could have stood up and said, what are you looking at, mate? You want some? But I didn't do that. And anyway, the, he sent the, the clerk down to speak to me afterwards and say, oh, you know, the judge was very concerned that you were laughing in court. And this is, of course, uh, a new brand of nonsense because people should be able to laugh in court if they wish. People do, uh, you know, I think that in common with the emergency services, you know, fire brigade, police officers, journalists do have a fairly dark sense of humour. Or years ago, they were allowed to have a dark sense of humour. I suppose that's why me and Scott have spent all this time working with each other, because rather than uh, prostituting ourselves around some uh, shabby newspaper office, is because we can just do what we want. And that's the size of it, really. And that's the way it's been for a long time. We just sit there moaning about the state of the industry, laughing about people's strange demises and strange court cases that we hear, and then shuffle off home, uh, crawl into a bottle of wine and uh, carry on moaning. For fans of Gallo's humour, no matter how humdrum the case, there's always something new to be had. Just when you think your sense of the darkly absurd, of the awkwardly sinister or hysterically revolting had peaked, someone, somewhere, outdoes themselves and ends up facing 20 years to life at Snaresbrook. In February of this year, for instance, the office was abuzz with chatter about a case of a type that had never before been tried under English law. It had a grotesque, almost vaudevillian quality of excess to it. This was the case of the Nigerian organ harvesters. And by the time Jack Hudson joined Court News, it had already been ticking over for a while. So there'd been hearings about it. It started as a trial in May this year. It was a very interesting trial. It was eight weeks long, and it was one that we covered quite a lot of. You know, some cases we'll just dip in and out of, maybe just do the opening and the verdict. But that was a case that some weeks I was in every day. And what was the first day that you dipped into? I think I did some of the initial hearings, and then we covered... The trial so the trial started and there was a week before the trial actually opened to the jury and during that week they were discussing Sonia the daughter's health and whether she was fit to stand trial. Sonia Ekwamadu was 23 years old at the time. Her kidneys were failing and they were bad enough already that she needed regular dialysis. Dialysis is effectively washing of the blood to remove the impurities that the kidneys normally filter out. Machine dialysis is a ghastly, painful process that takes about three hours at a time and is in itself damaging to the body. But Sonia did have one stroke of good luck. Her father, E.K. Ekwaramadu, was a big important guy in their native Nigeria. So the case was Nigerian Senator E.K. Ekwaramadu was on trial with his wife Beatrice, daughter Sonia and a Nigerian doctor and they were charged with bringing 
a young man from Nigeria to the United Kingdom to give an organ to Sonia who had kidney problems, was on kidney dialysis and needed a transplant. Um, so the first week of the trial was all legal argument regarding if Sonia was fit to stand trial because she was on ongoing kidney dialysis. She was having treatment three times a week. So that was the first week and then it opened to the jury the week after. Uh, and do we know the name of the man who was brought to the UK? I do. I can't say that name because under the Modern Slavery Act, he has automatic anonymity. So he was always named in court, but we can't report his name. His name was Daniel. His fake name, at least, for the purposes of the trial. Confusingly, he was also often referred to simply by a letter, C. Tell me a bit about the people in the dock, this family. What were they like? What sort of air did they project? It was different and unusual to see a family in the dock. We used to seeing sort of murderers or gang members, and this was a wealthy, important Nigerian senator. So he'd been the leader of the Senate in Nigeria, which is the equivalent to being the leader of the House of Commons in the UK. There was certainly a different air about them, an air that they shouldn't be in the dock. And indeed, that was a point that their lawyers made. So I think we'd had Wynn Cousins in court the same week the trial ended. And in his closing speech, one of the barristers made the point that, you know, this prestigious Nigerian senator was now in the same place as Wayne Cousins or other murderers. So there were, Sonia and Beatrice were on bail throughout the trial and they could be seen around the court, walking around, sitting on the sofas. It was very quiet, but they certainly had an air of importance about them. Sonia was indeed very ill, had to be taken away in an ambulance. Sometimes would be sitting out court, sitting outside court, being consoled by her mother. More than a year before the trial, it had already been evidence to the Egromadus that Sonia would need a new kidney. As her condition worsened, the senator reached out to his brother, Diwe. His brother, in turn, contacted a man he'd once studied with. That was the 51-year-old Dr. Obine Abeta. Potentially by fantastic coincidence, Dr. Abeta had first-hand experience of overcoming just this sort of problem. Because he'd already given himself a new kidney in England by pretending that another man was his cousin. The duo of donor and recipient had managed to convince the authorities at the Royal Free Hospital in Hampstead that they were in fact related. Turns out that's precisely how hard and how easy it is to traffic in organs. Prosecutor Hugh Davis opened the case to the jury and that's when you get a summary of the evidence. So we heard a bit about what the victim was saying. And it was at that stage when it came out that there'd been another kidney transplant that actually went ahead. So this kidney transplant was foiled at the hospital. Sonia didn't get the kidney. She is in fact still looking for a kidney donor. But the doctor who helped them, Dr. Habina Rebetta, had had a kidney donation from a donor who was a friend of the donor that came over to help Sonia. Dr. Abina Rebetta, he was a friend of the brother of I.K. Ekomadu. The trial heard evidence about this donation, but it wasn't something that he was charged with, so there's been no sort of verdict about that. But he always said that his donor was a friend 
who he brought over who wanted to give him a kidney. So Dr. Abina Abeta had set up hospitals in Nigeria. He said he was quite liked in his community. He said there was lots of people who were lining up to give him a kidney. And he brought over this donor, claims that he didn't offer any payment to the donor, and he had a successful donation. And it was that model that he was going to use to try and help Sonia. Part of the Ekaramadu's defence involved claiming that this was all a big misunderstanding, born of a clash of cultures. The argument of the defendants throughout the trial was that in Nigeria, it's very common for people to offer to give their organs altruistically, more than the UK, where doctors would only really believe that someone's doing it altruistically if you're a close friend or a family member. So they said that when, because they were coming to the UK, they had to pretend that they were cousins, and they admitted that lie. And how did the doctors believe them? I'm still a little bit gobsmacked that they got away with it, that you simply go into a hospital, you say, we are cousins, and then you get your kidney swaps. Well, they got away with it the first time. They actually didn't get away with it the second time. Um, I don't know. I guess you've got two people giving the same story, saying they're cousins. They'd faked documents. Now... Dr. Abeta said that he could arrange the same scheme for the Equiramadus. All they would need was a willing donor. Here, accounts diverge. The exact question of the willingness of the donor is at the heart of everything that comes after. And here, we need to go back to how Daniel first came by the unique opportunity to relieve himself of his excess organ. Daniel was a seller of mobile phone parts by trade, which he vended from a wheelbarrow in Lagos. One day, he was approached there by a man who'd donated his own kidney to Dr. Abeto. The man explained his story, said it was easy enough, said he was now perfectly well, no issues. Then the conversation became more practical. The man offered Daniel some 4.5 million naira, which is actually only about four and a half thousand pounds. By one account, Daniel agreed. But later, in court, Daniel said he merely thought he was being asked to work in England. Either way, the next thing that happened was that he was asked to go for a blood test. Daniel again said he thought this was something to do with his UK visa. In reality, it was to check whether he was the right blood type to be a donor match for Sonia. Which implies that Daniel was not the only person being approached in Lagos. After all, if he hadn't been a match, it would have all ended there the search would have moved on, as, presumably, it already had. Lucky for him, he was a match. Thus began his odyssey. Daniel was put on a flight to London. To make sure he couldn't scarper, he wasn't given any money. I think at the start, Daniel thought the, the, the offer from Dr. Berto, I think he actually said it was from God. But then when he got to London, uh, I don't think things were as heavenly as he'd imagined. Um, to start off with, I think he had, to, he had to sleep on the couch, Dr. Berta's couch, rather than having a bed of any sort. And then the doctor suggested a few household chores uh, that he might be interested in doing. And then after that, he was effectively used as a houseboy. That was where he met this specialist. I think it was a Dr. Uh, Peter Dupont who they, they were chatting to to start off with. And um, they had a range of these medical tests, as you can imagine. Um, but the important thing, I think, was that not so much the tests, but basically him pretending 
that he was related to Sonia so that the, uh, the transplant could go ahead. Daniel was coached on what he had to say and uh, they even, I think, they got a translator uh, was engaged and she'd already worked at the uh, London Free Hospital and I think the, the couple offered her something like £1,500 uh, to do the translation. And uh, she was responsible for feeding Daniel's native Igbo language to the doctors and trying to cover up, basically, any little errors that he might make. So, you know, she was, uh, how can I say, helping them out slightly, of course, not guilty of any criminal offence. Um, but I think that even at that first interview, I think that basically it was fairly obvious that, uh, you know, something was completely and utterly wrong. And um, Dr. DuPont had the forms to fill in and I don't think he was very keen. He wasn't going to do it at all. And what he said at that meeting was that they was going to have to have a second opinion uh, with a different consultant. And I think that second consultant had the same doubts uh, as the first and after that, they said, I'm afraid it's not going to go ahead. The hospital blocked the operation. The first thing that the police knew of it was when Daniel turned up in stains, ragged and disoriented. He was completely ragged, disorientated. Obviously, he's in a strange country, uh, really didn't know uh, what was going on. He, he told them then that he was 15 years old and he'd been uh, trafficked into Britain. And he said he'd given his, uh, how can I say, his handlers the slip and he'd spent three days and two nights just sort of wandering around and ending up in Staines near Heathrow, uh, 17 miles away from the uh, centre of London. Despite their initial suspicions, the doctors at the Royal Free hadn't informed the police. But now, finally, alarm bells were going off at the highest level. By that point, E.K. and his wife Beatrice had already left the country, but then they did something rather foolish. It was a little bit too late because E.K. and his wife had uh, already left Britain and uh, they would have done very wise not to come back for a while. But I think they decided they were going to have a nice little holiday and they were on their way, on their way to Turkey and uh, they, they decided they had to stop off by Heathrow and uh, a detective sergeant, Andy Owen, uh, in this case, uh, heard all about it. And you can imagine, he must have thought, jackpot. And um, he was there to meet them, and they were both nicked. It, well, they were nicked, and Sonia, and then, of course, Dr. Abartos in, the, in, the, in uh, London was also arrested as well. I think uh, Andy Owen said that he didn't realise uh, how important the senator was until he was leading him away through the airport and every Nigerian they passed either tried to wish him well or clap him on the back. And uh, then he realised that the, the man was of some importance. The trial began in January 2023. It was a unique case to prove. The statute that covered it had been included in the Modern Slavery Act of 2015, but there it had languished for seven years this would be the first real test of the law. In fact, the prosecution had to ask the Attorney General for special permission. When Jack was away, court news reporter Eddie Beaver also covered some of the later weeks of the trial. I wanted to ask him about the technicalities of the act. Broadly speaking, offences for trafficking can be split up into 
this is not very legally correct. Well, maybe. Basically, it's, <laughs> you can dry them up into trafficking for purposes of sexual exploitation or trafficking for um, the purpose of exploiting labor. And this was the first kind of trafficking for the purpose of um, obtaining an organ. Um, so, yeah, it was the first successful prosecution of its kind in the UK under the, I believe it's the 2015 Act. Yeah. They were charged with conspiracy to arrange or facilitate travel of another person with a view to exploitation. When Detective Owen had met the Equimadas at Heathrow, their phones had been seized. And on them, reams of WhatsApp messages now laid out the state's case. These showed that the family went to great lengths to coach Daniel to play the part of a joyful cousin to Sonia. Just as sham marriages will often start by building a photo set of ice skating and love seats, the Ekramados had tried to lay down a trail of supporting evidence. For instance, they'd taken Daniel to a West African restaurant in London. They'd told him to dress up and got a series of candid snaps of him looking jolly with Sonia. Diwe Ekwiramadu, Ike's brother, was also in the group chat, and he seemed to be managing some of the process with Daniel. On WhatsApp, he reported back on his dealings with the hospital interpreter. I have met with the Igbo interpreter. She agreed to work with us. She will be involved in coaching the boy, and during his consultation and interviews, he will be providing the relevant interpretation. She insisted that I give her £1,500. After the first failed meeting with the consultants, Dwe messaged E.K. again. I have spoken with Iberi. She said the boy did better today, but he's still showing so much timidity. She covered up for him and added the words as much as possible. Once the operation had been stopped, Daniel's role might have been over, but Sonia still needed her kidney. And thanks to the WhatsApp messages, we know that she was being passed even more pictures of fresh prospective donors. The family was simply writing this one off and moving on. Beneath their pictures, she kept up a running commentary on their individual suitability. The dark one looks better. The light one looks like you will run away. Still stuck on that couch, Daniel's initial relief was beginning to curdle with darker emotions. A few days later, at the flat, he was visited by two men. They asked him some questions. Then they bid him to raise his shirt and began to prod his belly. Daniel estimated that this was not, on the whole, good news. Were they, he wondered, fitting him up to have his kidney removed back in Nigeria? And was that removal going to come with even less of a spirit of volunteerism? The organ donation didn't go ahead. It was refused by the hospital. The victim was staying with Dr. Abetta. He says that he was treated a bit like a slave there, that he was forced to do half his work. And then eventually he left Dr. Abetta's house. He walked for three days from Suffolk, South London, ended up in Staines, handed himself into police station and said, I'm a victim of modern slavery. So he pretended to be 14 years old. He was in fact 21 years old. He said he was living on the streets in Lagos, which he later said he meant he lived on a street in a house. <laughs> in the end, Daniel testified at the trial via video link. Why, why was he on video link? I think because... I think there was, again, some consideration of his vulnerabilities. Some defend, um, some witnesses are giving permission to appear on a video link if it's more comfortable, if they don't want to see the defendant. I think basically the argument was that he was scared to give evidence. He was 
giving evidence against a very powerful man in his home country. And although he wasn't named in the UK media, he was being named in the Nigerian media because our laws on reporting restrictions have no effect on their press. And certainly the Nigerian reports that I saw were often very supportive of the senator and very negative about this victim. So I think for him to give his best evidence, he was allowed to appear via video link because he said he was scared of these defendants. Later, one more figure emerged in the chain, though he was not prosecuted. That was Chris Agbo, a Cambridge-based NHS doctor. Agbo, it seemed, had been running a side business, helping foreign patients to get treatment in Britain. It was he who had fundraised for Dr. Abeta's original transplant. He who had organised meetings with the Royal Free's private wing. And for turning so much business the way of the Royal Free, Agbo seems to have been angling for some kind of commission. As the court heard, on the 8th of December 2021, he wrote to the kidney specialist, Dr. Dupont, saying, This is the third transplant that my company has brought to the Royal Free. We have never received any form of incentive from the Royal Free Hospital. Hope this time my company will be treated fairly and differently. This was not warmly received by the Royal Free. Dr. Agbo is presently being investigated by both the police and the General Medical Council, which has imposed conditions on his medical license. Despite the evidence of the WhatsApps, despite the testimony of Daniel, the verdict would still be virgin territory. Like, how did, how did the trial play out? Were they guilty from the start? Oh no, no, it's very, very uncertain which way that was going to go. Yeah, which is why I think it, I would, I would categorise it as one of the most thrilling because, I mean, we always sort of have these, as, as, as when I say we, our court reporters, when we cover cases, we, we definitely come to conclusions about verdicts before they happen. You know, we think, well, that evidence, oh, that evidence is very poor, that defence is really strong, oh, this is really close, oh, they shouldn't be guilty. You know, we make all these conclusions as witnesses to these trials and and this was certainly one where it was it was unpredictable highly unpredictable no it wasn't a clear one i think by the end we were sure that dr abetta was going down because there's quite a lot of evidence against him i think we were about 50 50 on whether there was enough evidence for the senator and we didn't think beatrice and sonia would be found guilty Beatrice's case was that she didn't know anything, basically that in Nigeria, women are more subservient to their husbands. She said she wasn't involved in the finances, which we found a little unlikely because she was in fact an accountant. And Sonia didn't take to the stand, but it was the same case put forward that she didn't know what was happening, that her family told her it was an altruistic donation. When the verdict finally did come back, it was after two weeks of jury deliberation. Two weeks in which the accused had hung around in Salat Crown Court every single day. A jury can come back at any time, so court complexes are often strewn with people whiling away what may be the last hours of their freedom. Fixing themselves coffee, staring at their phones, waiting. The day the verdicts came back, it was Eddie Beaver, 
who was on duty at Southwark Crown Court. As he tells it, this verdict prickled the hackles on his neck. A moment of real human drama. The most thrilling thing was going to this verdict in which the mother and the father are found guilty and the daughter is not. And the daughter is told to leave the dock and she was wailing and as she was sort of just... She, she was absolutely beside herself. It was, it was astonishing. And to think that five minutes prior, she'd been lying on a sofa outside the courtroom, just waiting. She'd been waiting for days at least, and suddenly she'd been reduced to, to an absolute wreck. And you just, you really, that, that was really seeing someone at their absolute lowest. Cameras and recording devices are not allowed in British courts. In fact, possessing even a microphone inside the Old Bailey is a great way to get yourself charged with contempt of court. But over the past couple of years, post-COVID, things have begun to shift in certain limited circumstances. Because this case was so unusual, special permission was granted for the judge's sentencing remarks to be taped. From the bench, Justice Johnson got each defendant to stand in turn as their sentence was read. The applicable starting points are custodial sentences of 10 years in the case of Abina Abeta, 10 years and six months in the case of E.K. Ekramadu, and six years in the case of Beatrice Ekramadu. Abina Abeta, stand up, please. There are aggravating features in your case. You deliberately targeted a victim who was particularly vulnerable due to his young age, his isolation from his immediate family, and his poverty. After the conspiracy to exploit C was thwarted, you continued to try and find another person to be exploited in the same way. Senator E.K. Ekoramadu was sentenced to nine years. The judge said he should serve two-thirds of that in a UK prison. Beatrice got four years and six months, with half spent in custody. Meanwhile, Dr. Abeta was sentenced to a full 10 years, at which point Dr. Abeta broke down and wept. Back in Nigeria, few expected the mighty E.K. would not be returning home. In fact, much of the press remained loyally pro-E.K., spending rather too much time blackening the name of the victim, whose identity they were definitely not protecting. With the traffickers behind bars, Daniel's own future in the country came into sharper focus. Daniel had definitely lied about his age to the authorities. The question of quite what he knew about his purpose when he first jetted into Heathrow was still obscure, but as a legally confirmed victim of modern slavery, he is now entitled to the full protection of the British state. So the defence case throughout the trial was that the victim was pretending to be vulnerable, pretending to be a victim of exploitation so that he could stay in the UK. And he has now, in fact, stayed in the UK. And he admitted that he had initially lied to police because he wanted to stay here. So he then changed his story. He always maintained that he didn't know he was coming to give an organ. The prosecution case accepted that that might not be true and that he was likely offered money for his organ. But yeah, I think because of that doubt around the key witness, we were a bit unsure if there would be convictions. To summarise what is perhaps a slightly confusing story, the court ultimately believed 
that he had been trafficked to the UK without his prior knowledge or with his prior knowledge? Does, does that actually make a difference in terms of, of sentencing? It may have made a difference in terms of sentencing. In terms of being guilty or not guilty, it didn't matter. So it's an offence to pay someone for their organ. It was an interesting trial, really, because you did talk to people about it and you had some people saying, well, that's not that bad. So they paid someone for a kidney. He's getting paid. Is that an issue? Of course, the argument is that if you can pay someone for your kidney, then very rich people, which these defendants were, can take advantage of very poor people, which this defendant was. I think the accepted case in the end was that he was paid. He was paid for, he was going to be paid for his organ. He agreed to do that. But that is still an offence and that is still exploitation. In a victim statement read out to the court, he said he remained fearful of reprisals against him and against his family. He said that his father had been approached and told to drop the case. One fact that spoke to Daniel's account of his real fear was when he was visited by a team of police. They'd come to explain to him that he might be in line for a payout. But as Judge Johnson noted in his sentencing remarks, the officers were stunned by his response. He immediately responded that he did not wish to entertain compensation. The officer says, quotes, C spoke with moral conviction. Despite understanding the material benefit receiving compensation may have for him, he adamantly said he did not need or want anything from the bad people. He no longer wants them to have any involvement with him in any capacity. I wonder whether some of the fact that he has refused compensation is a way of him trying to placate the Ekomanu somewhat, uh, trying to say to them, well, I didn't take your money from you rather than from any matter of conscience, to be quite honest with you. Because he will be aware more than anyone how much power they have, how much money they have. These people, uh, the Ekomanus, uh, they're bitter, angry people. And I think they're going to be looking for him. I just really, really hope that he's got himself somewhere and he's safe somewhere. Because I think if he was to go back to Nigeria, I really don't think his life would be worth living. Um, it's a really, really horrible fate to be chased or hounded by people like this. For all its ghoulish overtones, this is still only the story of an attempted organ harvesting. No kidneys changed hands. Yet that hardly matters because this is more than a story about 200 grams of renal tissue. The trial of the Ekramadus was a peculiarly 21st century crime. It was about mobility and the illusion of seamlessness. Like many of Nigeria's elites, it seemed obvious to them that they would have property in London and that they would hold a good fraction of their large wealth in a stable Western democracy with a banking system and a property market that made their whims effortless. At the other end of the scale, Barrow Boy Daniel was almost a caricature of the penniless third world migrant. It's London's unique capacity to accommodate both that made it the obvious venue for this act, to hoover up the world's poor and shield the world's rich. With that same relaxed consumer confidence, 
the Ekwamadus preferred British medicine to Nigeria. Yet the idea that English laws should apply to them seems to have come as something of a shock. At the same time, the British authorities don't come out well either. The law had been on the books for seven years, yet it wasn't active detective work that opened the case. It was only Daniel getting cold feet. Even when they cancelled the transplant, hospital doctors didn't see fit to inform the authorities. We also know that there had been at least one other organ harvesting in Britain, the case of Dr. Abine Abeta's own kidney. Was that the only one? Unlikely. Like the laws on female genital mutilation, with one successful prosecution in five years, the senses of a national bureaucracy deciding to muddle by, helpless to hold back the tide of globalization, they stand on the shores, waving the statute books that state that this is the sort of thing that Britain is technically against, but incapable of acting. In that sense, the prosecution of the Equimados could serve as a real line in the sand. More likely, it'll be the exception that proves the rule. Fresh from the Old Bailey is produced by me, Gavin Haynes, in partnership with Court News UK. Sound Mix is by Jonathan Webb. You can follow us on Twitter. Court News also has an excellent weekly substack with the podcast Killers of the Old Bailey, featuring Britain's most experienced murder case reporter, Granwell Gray. The British legal system makes it hard to contact those involved, so if you have personal knowledge of aspects of the organ harvester's case, or of other cases we've covered, contact us through our Gmail, freshfromtheoldbailey at gmail.com. Discretion assured.